Um, I'm not going to so much exposit this text for us this afternoon, but I want to just kind of orient our thinking here before we look at this doctrine of the session of Christ. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel and his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. So as I mentioned this afternoon, we'll be looking at the session of Christ. And the word session may be somewhat unfamiliar term to us, but it refers to Christ's present reign from his throne as ruler and judge. You've likely heard the word used when we speak of a, of a court, of a courtroom. We say, we say the court is now in session. The judge has come upon the bench. He sat down to make certain rulings, certain sentences, judgments. The court is in session. The Presbyterians also use this word to speak of local, uh, the, the elders of a local church. They say that that is the session. This, this body of elders are the session. They rule and they teach, but they rule the church. So this is generally what the term refers to when we speak of, of Christ's session. He's, he's sovereign Lord. We read about this. He's sovereign Lord. He's ruler of the kings of the earth. The session of Christ refers to his present work, his present work now as mediator and ruler of his church and indeed the universe. But where is Christ now? What is he doing? What is the relationship of Christ now seated in session to you? What's his relationship to me? What is Christ's relationship now seated in heaven to the church? What's his relationship? These are some of the questions that I want us to consider this afternoon. But I want to say just a few things by way of introduction before we answer those questions. The first thing I want you to think about is this. The session of Christ is an utterly supernatural doctrine. This is something that is completely unknown apart from God's supernatural and his special revelation to us. 
It's a thoroughly spiritual truth. This is something that cannot be tested according to our senses. And because of this, this truth, brothers and sisters, this truth is repugnant to the world. It is an insult to the modern mind, to the modern man with with all of his science, with all of his scientific equipment, with all of his testing and hypotheses, all of his knowledge about the workings of the universe. This truth is an insult to him. But to us, what, what a lovely doctrine is this? What a winsome doctrine is this to the sinner who, who knows of his need for a Savior? What a winsome doctrine. This is, this is the doctrine of the church. This is an essential doctrine to the gospel. We confess this as Christ's church in the Apostles' Creed. When we, when we speak of Christ, we say we believe in Jesus Christ, born or conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. All of this is to say that he was humiliated. He came as a real man. He came in humiliation. But as we continue in that creed, we say he's not there anymore. He's He's not in the grave anymore. He's exalted. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. This is Christ's session. This is an essential doctrine to the gospel. And we say also that from there, from that right hand, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. From there, he rules and reigns. From there, he will come again. He is the one in charge. Our Lord Jesus Christ rules with all authority in heaven and earth. Jesus Christ is in control of everything. What a winsome doctrine. What a lovely doctrine. What a comforting doctrine this is to his saints. There's a man who sits on the throne of God. There's a man, flesh and blood, like you and me. He sits on the throne of God and he rules He reigns, he governs all things, and he's God. This is is the session of Christ. It's real, and it's true. It's inescapable. So the question immediately, I just want to say, do, do you believe this? Brothers and sisters here at Sunday school, do you believe this doctrine? Do you believe this doctrine when you suffer? Do you think about it? Do you think about this doctrine when you rejoice to the Lord, when you give him praise and give him thanks? When you pray to Christ, where is he? Who is he? He's the sovereign king of all the earth. This is the session of Christ. So this afternoon, I have, you can think of this as three points. I want to first just look very briefly at what the scriptures say about the session of Christ And I'll I'll explain that a little bit. We'll exposit and say, what do the scriptures mean by the session of Christ? But then I want to look at this more personally and say, what does the session of Christ mean for you? What does it mean for me? Again, if you remember from from last week, theology, right? Theoretical and practical. Theology answers those practical questions. It has to. And thirdly, in the the last place, we'll look at what the session of Christ means for the church. So if you... If you would, we'll look, turn with me to one text, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 uh, and verse 21. 
Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 21. It says that God raised him from the dead. Verse 20, I'm sorry, picking up in verse 20. That God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he puts all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church or, or for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me read for you a, a very familiar text. You don't have to turn there from Philippians chapter 2, the Carmen Christi. After describing the, the humiliation of Christ, Paul says, For this reason also, because of Christ's humiliation and because of his perfect obedience, he says, God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These two texts here, they speak of Christ's session. But, but what do these texts mean? What are they teaching us? Well, the first thing we could say is, is that the, the session of Christ, it's not so much a, a, a reference to a particular place. When we speak of Christ at the right hand of God, it's not so much a reference to a particular place. And, and we have to say this. Why do we have to say this? Because the right hand of, he's at the right hand of God. And we know that God doesn't have a body. So is it, is it, a, is it a particular place at God's right hand? We, we have to say no. We have to say no to that. God is spirit. God's omnipresent. So this can't, be literally, this can't literally be God's right hand. But nevertheless, this has to be someplace. Think about it. This has to be someplace. We know that Christ has a real and a physical body. We know that he ascended into heaven. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God. And we know that heaven is a real place. Jesus is in heaven now. We know he's surrounded by the angels. They're serving him. They're ministering to him. They're worshiping him. He's surrounded by the saints in glory. The church triumphant. Those are brothers and sisters who have gone before us. They see Christ face to face. It has to be a real place. The right hand of God is, it's in heaven. It's real. It is there. But that's really all we can say about Christ's present location. But Christ sitting at the right hand of God, it communicates something more significant than just his location. It communicates his authority, his power, his dominion, his glory. This is what it means. Saying that Christ is at God's right hand. It's something of a figure of speech. We say that a, a, a man uses his right hand. When he uses his right hand, he sets out to do, to do something, to, to accomplish a task. It symbolizes his strength. The right hand symbolizes his power to execute. We say things also like, like so-and-so is my right-hand man. What does that mean? He's the one you've put in charge. He's the one whom, whom you've given authority and, and honor and, and, and prominence to. And so as the mediator, 
Christ has merited all authority in heaven and earth. He has won it. This is important. He's won it. He's merited it. He's rightfully earned it. He now sits at God's right hand and he governs the church. He governs all things for the good of the church. He's king over his church. He's king over his enemies. And he's king over creation. And you know that when we speak of Christ seated at the right hand of God, we're speaking primarily of Christ in his humanity as mediator. He came in humiliation. He's now been exalted. And part of that exaltation is being at the right hand of God as our mediator. Jesus has been so exalted in the highest degree possible for a man. And thanks be to God that he is our mediator, as I've said. But Jesus here, also we have to say this, that Jesus being seated does not mean that he's inactive. Jesus is not a passive king sitting there reclining, sitting down passive as, a, as an in session. In Acts 7, you'll remember with me that Stephen looks into the heavens and what? Jesus is standing. Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 13, if we kept on reading, we would see that the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven is clothed in a robe with a golden sash and he's doing something. He's, he's walking amongst his churches. He's caring for them. He's protecting them. He's guarding them. He's instructing them. He's strengthening his churches. He's an active king. And you see, brothers and sisters, this is what Christianity is all about. Christ is actively ruling. He's been raised from the dead, declared to be the Son of God with power. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. This fact, as I've said, it's inescapable. You must reckon with this fact. So let me ask you a question. We're here at Sunday school, but let me ask you a question. How do you respond to these things? How do you respond to this person, to this one who's been raised from the dead, who's given all authority in heaven and earth? This is the next thing I want us to consider. Again, theology is practical, and it's, and it's personal here. The next thing we're going to consider is what does, what does the session of Christ mean for you and for me? I want to immediately make this personal. Christ's session is something real. It's something concrete, and it's personal. In Peter's preaching in Acts, in Acts chapter 10, he speaks of Christ. He says, he says that, that Christ has, has given his apostles to preach a message. They are to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that this is the one, that Jesus is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Paul, also preaching in Acts chapter 17 at Mars Hill, he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance... God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. See, these, these two sermons, they're making reference to Christ's session. 
He's been raised from the dead, declared to be the Son of God in power, and rules and reigns, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. So the immediate question is, what will you do with Christ? For all of us have to answer this question. To the believer in Christ, do you rejoice and rest in the session of Christ? When you think of him, as I've said, when you pray to him, do you think of him as the exalted Savior? Do you think of him as the risen and exalted King of kings, the ruler of the kings of the earth? Is this the one you're praying to? Do you love him? Do you order your life around the personal relationship, your personal relationship to Christ? Is he your Lord? Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Brothers and sisters, look at your life in the home. Look at your life at the workplace. Look at your life with your family. Look at your, look at your life in the church. Is Christ king? Is Christ your king or are you king? Are you queen? Does Christ rule in your mind? Does he reign over your emotions? Has he taken captive your wills? We all fall, and we all fall short of the glory of God. Nevertheless, we, we press on by the grace of God to conform ourselves to Christ the King. This, again, is what Christianity is about. We follow a person, and he's alive. He's not dead. And Jesus says, come and follow me. So I, I encourage you, I exhort you this morning, look at your life, and I'll look at my life, and let's look to Christ, who reigns as our elder brother, our sovereign king, who protects us. He's our great shepherd. He loves us. Well, in the third place, this is where we'll spend most of our time. It's a good thing we have some time. Um, we're going to look at, I want to look at with you, what does the session of Christ mean for the church? We've looked at what the scriptures say. We just looked at two passages plus our text in Revelation. Uh, we looked at what, what the scriptures say about the session of Christ, what they mean. We've looked at briefly what it means for you, for me. But now let's, let's look at what the session of Christ means for the church. When we think of Jesus' session, it's natural for us, first of all, to think of Christ as acting now as our king. This is largely what we've been explaining. Christ is king. But when Christ acts, and I know you guys have, have learned this from, from Pastor Ryan, because he's talking about proper, or he's finished that now, right? In Sunday school, he, he taught on Christology proper. When Christ acts, he acts always as the God-man, as the mediator. This means that he doesn't just act as king, but he acts as a prophetic priestly king. He acts as a kingly prophetic priest. He acts as a kingly priestly prophet. The whole person acts as prophet, priest, and king. Burkhoff, Louis Burkhoff, he says that the mediatorial work is always a work of the entire person. 
Not a single word can be limited to any one of these offices. When Christ acts, the whole person acts as prophet, priest, and king. And so for the sake of completeness for this this short lecture, I want to talk about each of these functions right now, how Christ functions as prophet, priest, and king in relation to the church. So in the first place, let's look look at Christ as prophet now. In session, Christ continues his prophetic work. Christ, he reigns as our prophet. In our text this morning, when we read it from Revelation chapter 1, we saw in verse 1 that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 3, John says that Revelation is a prophecy. The book of Revelation then is a prophecy from God mediated through Jesus Christ the prophet. In verse 5, if you're still there, we can look at it. Interesting here. In verse 5, John writes, he says that this is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. That's what the New King James says there, faithful witness. But an accurate understanding of that is to say that Jesus is the faithful martyr. He was a faithful witness in his humiliation, in his, in his death. He was a prophet in, in his humiliation. But then, then John says, so he's a faithful martyr. He's died, but he's also the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And we get this idea even from, from John here that Jesus was not only a faithful witness on earth, he's still a faithful witness from heaven. Christ is seated in session, and he is still speaking to his church. Christ was prophet on earth. He is still prophet in heaven. Christ is seated in session, and he is still speaking to us. You may ask the question, how is he speaking to us? You may have some good understanding of this, but, but we, let's, answer, let's answer that question. How is he speaking to us? How is he still acting as a prophet? Well, consider with me the exalted Christ's relation to the Spirit. I want to read two short verses from Paul. In Christ's exaltation, in his exaltation now, there is a heightened and more special union between Christ and the Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 45, he says that the last Adam has become a life-giving spirit. When Jesus rose from the grave, he became a life-giving spirit. He became the spirit. Almost, Paul's almost saying he became the spirit. How can that be? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17, listen to these words. Actually, turn with me there because I want you to see it. Please, turn with me there. Second Corinthians chapter three and verse seventeen. Okay, Paul says this. Now now when he says when he uses the word Lord, he's speaking of Jesus, okay? Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now, I just said that the word Lord, he's speaking of Jesus. You can, you can, let's replace that word. 
Jesus is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of Jesus is, there is liberty. That's what Paul's saying in that text. Paul, though, he's not conflating. He's not confusing the two persons, the Son and the Spirit of the Trinity. He's not doing that. They're still distinct persons, but Paul's making a very important point here. It's a very deep doctrine, but it's an important doctrine for us. We learn from these passages, the two that I've read, the Lord has become a life-giving spirit, and the Lord Jesus is the spirit. What's Paul saying? Paul is saying that the spirit is the spirit of Christ. What does that mean? In Christ's exaltation, he has received the spirit in the fullest measure possible that human nature is capable of. And when the Spirit acts now, in Christ's exaltation, when the Spirit acts and works, He always works as the Spirit of Christ. In other words, we could say this. The work of the Spirit, the work of Christ sending the Spirit. I'll say that one more time. The work of the Spirit now it's the work of Christ who sends the Spirit. Herman Bavink, um, Dutch Reformed guy, he says, puts, he put it this way. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ because he dwells in Christ himself. And because through him, that is through the Spirit, Christ communicates himself to his own. The Spirit is the Spirit. It, it cannot, it cannot be, he cannot be anything else but the Spirit of Christ. Because the Son sends the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is the work of Christ sending the Spirit. And this here, it sounds similar to us. of Something Peter says again in Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, Peter says this in his sermon. Having been exalted to the right hand of God, the session. Having been exalted to the right hand of God. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Has poured forth this which you both see and hear. He's received the Spirit and he's poured forth the Spirit. Christ received the Spirit above measure, then he sent his Spirit upon the church. So the exalted Christ as prophet, this is one of his functions. The exalted Christ as prophet pours forth his Spirit upon his church. The one who ascended, he gives gifts to men. But what do these gifts look like? Well, we know that, well, from Ephesians chapter 4, that the Lord has given some as apostles and prophets and evangelists to the church. And these gifts have ceased. They've ceased in the apostolic times. But these men, being filled with the Spirit, who was sent by Christ as prophets to them, to his church, they have recorded for us the inspired teachings and words of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God. Christ, through his Spirit, inspired the prophets and apostles to record and to set down the very words of Christ, the prophet. And now every time, every time that we open our Bibles and we read the words of Scripture, we read and we hear the very words of Christ, our prophet, Christ, our mediator. It's the self-same Christ who sent his Spirit, is the one who sends his Spirit into our hearts to illumine our minds to the things of God written in his Word. The Word and the Spirit have been given to us. Christ as prophet has, has given them to us. 
again, to apply this, what a glorious truth is this. When we read the words of the Bible, we are hearing Christ speak to us as our prophet, speaking to us as, as God or, or from God as God to men as a man. What a glorious truth. Christ has not left us to ourselves. He's still prophet speaking to us today. He meets with us. He communes with us. He helps us. He cares for us. He loves us. But not only has Christ given gifts as through us through his word and the gifts of, of apostles, prophets, and evangelists, but he's also given us pastors and teachers. And this is very, very practical for us. He's given us the office of elder, and that office still remains today. He did this. He grants these gifts to his church for the equipping of the saints, for the building up of the body. He did this. Listen to me. The, the office of elder, he, he did this for the continual work of his prophetic ministry to his church. Christ speaks through his servants today. Paul says something very interesting. I think it's very interesting in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Turn with me there again, if you would. Turn with 2 Timothy chapter 4. Yeah. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Paul says, preach the word. Because Jesus Christ is in session, preach the word. Why do we preach? We preach because he's in session, because he's ruling and reigning now. We preach because when he appears, Paul says, when his kingdom comes in fullness and glory, he will judge the living and the dead. He's king. He's in charge. Therefore, we preach the message of the king. We must herald the king's message as a church. Do you see this from the text? Two short verses. Massive implications. Christ's session is the impetus. It's the driving force behind Christ's mission to preach his word. What a privilege is this? To preach the word of God. What an honor. But who is sufficient for these things? What do you have that you did not receive? If you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? For all the preachers of God's word, we must remain humble. There's no boasting in this. There's no boasting. There can, only, there can be no pride, no arrogance in preaching the word of God. Only a, only a humble of giving of thanks, a diligent laboring, to know and to preach nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The session of Christ is the impetus for our preaching. I want to make this point of application here a little bit further to you as Sovereign Joy, Sovereign Joy Reformed Baptist Church. That's right, right? Yeah. Um, you changed the name, but the Reformed Baptist Church isn't there. Good, great. I want to make this point of application to you, brothers and sisters. You must, as those in his church, in Christ's church, you must respond to his authority. 
You must respond to his word. And you must always be vigilant in doing this. How easy it is to get, to get lazy and sloth. A mark of a true and healthy church is that she recognizes and submits to the authority of the Bible. Each church must believe his word and live according to his word and, and govern themselves according to his word. I believe you, you brothers and sisters, are rewriting some of your bylaws. If it's reforming, if it's, it's, if it's coming into conforming to the word of God, praise God for that. Praise God for that. We must govern ourselves. Well, Christ is the governor, right? Christ rules, but we must govern ourselves as a local body according to the rules, according to the commands set forth by Christ. Well, part of this, part of doing this, is to support the ministry of the word. The church is a creature of the word. I don't know if you've ever thought about the church that way. The church is a creature of the word. It's created by the proclamation of the gospel, and it must be ordered by the teaching and application of the gospel. The church grows by the word. Yes, she, she grows in sanctification and in Christ-likeness, but she also grows in number. She grows in number by the word. The church preaches the word to the people of God, and they preach the word, and she preaches the word to the, to the world. And by God's kind providence, he gathers together his elect into local assemblies. Christ's church is created by the word. And she's sent to preach the word to the world. This is her mission. And so it's the duty of the assembly. It's the duty of, of Christ's elect gathered together in a local assembly to keep the ministry of the word accountable to the word. You keep your pastors and your teachers accountable to preach the word faithfully. And furthermore, it's the duty of the church in obedience to Christ's session and rule to identify men who've been so gifted by Christ for the ministry of the word. The church has a responsibility. Because she is a, a creature of the word, she has a responsibility to identify and to cultivate men for the ministry of the word. The church must be diligent to recognize these men. It's the duty of the church in obedience to Christ to identify them, to teach them sound doctrine, to instruct them in the faith, to encourage that man, that those men, to encourage them in the good and the noble task that he aspires to, to test him. It is the church's responsibility to test these men in their gifts and in their graces, to evaluate them in their ability and in their Christian character, and then, if it is so determined, to set them apart for the gospel ministry. Because Christ has called them to the gospel ministry, and he works through his church. The mission of the church is to proclaim the word of God to the world. He gives gifts to the church. The church trains them, evaluates them, calls them, sets them apart to continue Christ's ministry to the world, to go and to make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them, to observe all that he's commanded. It's the duty of the church to commission men fitted with the Holy Spirit for the gospel ministry, to send them into the fields white for harvest so that the Lord Jesus Christ may be worshiped to the glory of God. Well, that's, that's a... We've looked at Christ's 
relationship to the church in session as a prophet. Now let's briefly consider Christ's relationship to the church in session as priest. When we think of Christ's priestly work now, we think mostly of his active and passive obedience, right? When we think of Christ as priest, we think of him as, as the sacrifice and as the priest who offers that sacrifice. And this work has culminated at the cross. But it's very interesting. In, in the letter to the Hebrews, the author there, he actually views Christ's earthly ministry it's as preparation. Christ's earthly ministry is preparation. It was, in a sense, practice for his heavenly ministry. Christ now is the exalted priest in the heavenly sanctuary. He saves those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them, he's seated in the heavenly sanctuary now as the king priest. But what does Christ, what does it mean for Christ to make intercession for his people in heaven now? What, what does this mean? Christ intercedes for us. We hear that. We don't maybe understand all that goes into that. When we think of Christ's intercession, intercession now, we usually think, and we usually speak this way, that, that Christ is praying for his people. That's true. But that's some, that's, oftentimes that's exclusively what we think about when Christ intercedes for his people now in heaven. But I want to tell you that Christ's intercession, it's much more than this. And this is important, brothers and sisters. You need to meditate on these things. These, these truths here, they will be a balm to your soul. They will encourage you and strengthen your faith. And I want to say, too, that these truths here, they are found all over the New Testament, and for good reason. You need to know this, what we're going to cover here, for your comfortable dependence upon Christ. Christ's present session is never separated from his atoning work on the cross. Christ's intercession now, it is never separated from his atoning work on the cross. Christ as high priest, he enters into the Holy of Holies as a representative for his people. This is part of his intercession. And he remains there forever. The Old Testament priests, they died. Christ lives forever in the, in the heavenly sanctuary until he comes again. Because he lives, he is a constant reminder of his perfect atonement. That's Christ's intercession. But also in the court of God, when Satan brings charges against you, when Satan comes as the adversary to bring charges against God's elect, Christ stands and he intercedes for them as an advocate. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, a very familiar passage. Paul says in Romans 8, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, the session, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. There's a parallel here in this text. Christ interceding for us is, is, is a parallel to God justifying us. God is the one who justifies. You see, Jesus at the right hand of God, he justifies his people. Moreover, Christ's intercession. What else does this mean? It means that Christ sanctifies our prayers. 
and he sanctifies our service to God. Christ sanctifies our prayers and our good works. He makes them acceptable to his Father. We've become now a kingdom of priests. Through Christ, we're, we're priests, and we are, we're living sacrifices, offering our lives to God as a, as a sacrifice. Through Christ, our prayers, our lives, our good works are made acceptable to the Father. Christ sanctifies us morally. You see, we always need Christ's intercession. When we pray, we often don't, don't know how to pray. Our prayers are, and our good works, are, they're so imperfect and, and mixed with sin. They're imperfect before God. But Christ, as a high priest, he intercedes and he cleanses them. He makes them acceptable to God. And finally, we should say, too, that Christ does pray for his people. We've said it's not just that. It's all these other things. But Christ does pray for his people. He's praying to his Father to send the Spirit to apply his redemption and to grant his church with all gifts and graces, which he's won for them. See, Christ's intercession, his intercession, then it's much more than, than simply supplication. It's much more than simply just entreaty to God the Father. It is that, but it's more. It's about merit. Christ's intercession is about his merit. He's won it all. He stands in the heavenly sanctuary at the right hand of God and he intercedes for his loved ones. Well, we've considered Christ acting as prophet and as priest thus far in his session. Let's look very briefly just as Christ as king. Let's consider finally Christ's work in session as king. Christ's session at the right hand of God, as we've said, it it indicates all authority. All authority and power and majesty belong to him. Christ has merited power and authority over all things. He's, he's won dominion over all his enemies. He's triumphed over sin, Satan, and death. But I want to maybe focus your attention on just one, more, one thing about this with regard to, Christ, to Christ's session as king. His authority and his rule over creation is subservient to one goal. Christ's authority over all things is subservient. It serves one goal and one mission. It's subservient to his church. All of in heaven and earth serves his mission as mediator to call, to institute, and to govern his church. He's head over all things for the church, we read. Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. His kingdom is from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And from those whom the Father has given them, he's calling them out of the world. He's gathering together them together in local assemblies into his kingdom. In this way, Christ is making his enemies his friends. He's conquering his people by his word and his spirit. Christ's session as king, it serves the church. But for those who are not his, those who are, who are not chosen to be priests in his kingdom, they too will be conquered, but not by being made his friends. They'll be conquered by remaining his enemies, being subdued and subjected, either by salvation or by judgment. Jesus Christ is, is growing his, church, his kingdom, either by mercy 
or by justice. And when Christ returns and his kingdom is established on earth forever, he will hand his kingdom over to his Father. Why? So that God may be all in all. You see, in in the new heavens and the new earth, we don't have so much of a a need for Christ to be prophet, priest, and king. God will be all in all. But he still forever will be our mediator. Forever Christ Christ will act as our prophet. He's the God-man. Everything Christ does and he will do is revelation. Everything Christ does is revelation. He's God. When he was walking down the road, that's special revelation from God. Forever Christ will be prophet. Forever Christ will have his body pierced. Forever we will know him to be the perfect priest, the perfect high priest for his people. Forever he'll be king. For all things will be new. He'll be our king. To conclude, I, I, maybe I want to say that I know we've considered maybe some, some deep doctrines. I, I know that they're, they're challenging. May the Lord help us in contemplating these things. I hope you've seen how practical, how important the session of Christ is, how this doctrine is, how, and how essential it is to the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ presently sits at the right hand of God, and, and the implications of this are massive. I'll encourage you, as you go throughout your day, think about what you're doing in relation to Christ, who reigns. He's active. He's working as our all-sufficient mediator. His work did not end when he died on the cross. His work did not end when he rose again from the dead. His work didn't end when he ascended into heaven. But he's working now as our present and our active mediator at the right hand of God. He's still working. He's still our prophet, our priest, and our king. So let this meditation comfort you. I'll encourage you, brothers and sisters, put your faith in the faithful witness. Remember the exaltation of the one who humbled himself. Hope in the one who is to come again to judge the living and the dead. Love the beloved who laid down his life for you and for me. Take courage in the priest king who sympathizes with our weakness, who knows our weaknesses. And draw near to Christ in your time of trouble. I encourage you, brothers and sisters. As I mentioned, this is a challenging doctrine. You you may not think that you need to hear this today. You may not think that you need to to meditate on the session of Christ. But but what about tomorrow? What's going to happen tomorrow to you, to your loved ones? You see, everything in life changes. Everything does change. It will change. We've seen this probably this year so prominently, haven't we? Our entire lives have changed. But the Lord Jesus Christ, who's in session right now, he lives forever. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We put our faith and our hope and our trust and our confidence in the one who sits at the right hand of God. We trust in him. We trust in this person who who lives and, and rules and governs all things for us, for his church, for his kingdom. He's growing his kingdom. That's why we come here. And so we say, well, Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. And we say, yes, Lord, come quickly. Amen. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for, 
for paying attention, for listening. I hope it was helpful to you. Let's briefly just call on the Lord. As, um, we'll give him thanks for, for Christ. We'll give him thanks for Christ in session now. And let's, let's pray and ask for help uh, the next hour. Our God and our Father, oh, how we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the one who came, who assumed to himself human nature like us, flesh and blood, who fulfilled your law, law perfectly for us, who died the curse of the law, who died the curse for sin for us, and he was raised again from the dead for our justification, who sits at the right hand of God now, ruling all things for us. God, we put our hope and our trust in him. Oh God, how we love Jesus, how we love Christ, and we long to see him face to face. God, help us to order all of our lives, all things to you.